You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. I feel like today there's a lot of words, so I hope I hope it's not too many. Um, not just me talking, but uh, if the day goes as I hope it will go, um, we're going to look at a poem. It feels very highbrow, too, as well. I was just talking to Tommy earlier. Uh, I must feel a little bit weird with that, because there's a guy named Philip Larkin, who's an English poet um, who died, I think, in 1985, and it was his last. I don't know much of him, but through another sermon that I listened to several years ago, I remember she referenced it, a Fleming Rutledge sermon, and went back and found it, and I'm not sure I've ever taught on it before. But it's going to be an example of, because we're looking at Lazarus in John 12, um, uh, which is also a long story. We're going to pare that down, but we'll, we'll read some from Lazarus. But before that, we'll look at this poem by Philip Larkin, uh, then go with Lazarus, just to kind of set up a contrast. Uh, a little bit of art, just to kind of keep our, our visual brains engaged, if that's helpful. And then, uh, and then we'll close with uh, an excerpt from Crime and Punishment, which is why I said it's very highbrow. Uh, between Philip Larkin and then, and then uh, uh, Fyodor Dostoevsky. But there's a great scene in Crime and Punishment where the harlot, Sonia, who he's secretly falling in love with, maybe it's not so secret, it is a secret, that he killed her good friend with an axe. Uh, uh, and he's just guilt-ridden. It's kind of the first psychological thriller in the novel form. Um, crime and punishment, that's one way it's known. And he comes to her apartment, and it's this great climactic scene. He begs her, read me the Lazarus story. Read me the Lazarus story. And he just sets it up with, to my mind, to my ears, to my, to my eyes, a great pregnancy of the power of, I need, I need to hear about the resurrection of Lazarus. I have to know this story, because he knows that he's dead in his trespasses, and he has one hope on what to do with this guilt. So that's where I hope the sweep of today goes. So um, so buckle up, or you have a chance now to go hear somebody else if you'd like. So um, let me pray. Gracious Father, uh, be with us today um, and help us, uh, especially that your word would go forth with power, that we, with timid hearts uh, who know ourselves, to be uh, dead in trespasses and sins, um, or who are, who are crying out for hope uh, to believe. Um, I pray that your word would go forth and meet us there. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So, um, I'm not going to go through a lot of what we've been doing. This is the slides from last week. Um, but do want to just set up, that's a good one to stop on, just for a brief, brief, brief moment, uh, this this series, which has been elongated slightly, so it's kind of slowing down, which is nice, uh, that you may believe, central thief, uh, uh, theme, uh, motif, probably the primary one for John the Evangelist, for the writer of the gospel, that you would believe, that you would be given faith, that you would be salvationed, that you would be gospeled, all these different words, which are nouns, but can also probably be used as verb, uh, salvationed believed uh, that you could be faith that's a better word that you would believe flip of that is that you would be faith that you would be gospeled as Luke we're following that in the sermons uh, great throwaway line in one of the stories here on uh, uh, 
and, and this word was poured into their ears. I love that phrase, you know, just trying to pour the word of power, the gospel, into your ears. And this is just one piece we were looking at last week, kind of tie over week to week, where from this painting, um, uh, very complicated but wonderful painting, and you see the blood splurting out from Jesus' side, falling onto the artist, really probably the artist's son, who finished this painting for his father. This is a man named Lucas Cranach, who was a contemporary of, of, of Martin Luther and Philip Melanchthon and Johannes Bugenhagen. And, and Wittenberg was the place to be in 1535. He wanted to be there. Um, and the blood of Christ splattering on his forehead to say, personally, this man was underneath the efficacious and the powerful and the faith-giving gospel of Jesus Christ flowing from his side. Um, and you can see the blood even splattering. It's that kind of details. This massive, it would take up this whole wall, uh, a massive painting, uh, and it gets down to this level of detail. And that's just a way, we'll, we'll come back to that, I think, when we look at, uh, at John 12, because it talks about the Son of God being lifted up. But I thought we'd go here, which is a very arresting uh, painting. Um, Hans Holbein, who, after he painted this, Henry VIII really liked him. A little bit of English and Anglican history comes into play, where uh, Holbein was then commissioned by Henry to come over and be the court painter for uh, for for his court, for Henry VIII's court. Um, and so he moved to England, and then a lot of the famous portraiture that you see of Henry VIII and his wives, his six wives, and then even some uh, uh, into Mary's reign were, were painted by Holbein. But before he did that, as a younger man, um, he painted this, um, a portrait of the dead Christ in the tomb, as it's sometimes called, or the body of dead Christ in the tomb. And also to tie over a little bit to Dostoevsky, you had to check this this, this morning. In, 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 uh, in his book, The Idiot, which was written after Crime and Punishment, we're going to read from, uh, this plays a central part in that story. Um, uh, Dostoevsky, after he wrote Crime and Punishment, saw this painting and it almost undid his faith. Um, it's uh, I've not. Have anybody seen this? It's in Basel, Switzerland. Um, uh, it's at eye level and it's 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 life sized. So the portrait is probably a little bit over six and a half feet wide uh, and about 18 inches deep, and it's at right here at your eye level. So it'd be from basically here to here, and you can imagine that. And it's with a certain depth, even in 1520 when he was painting this. He really got, this was all the early Renaissance where they're just understanding this, where it looks like it's almost going into the wall. It's not quite an optical illusion, but it's very real. Uh, and it's like you're staring into what we call Holy Saturday. The portrait, the body of the dead Christ in the tomb, where it's his head is turns slightly to us. You know, he's always sort of arresting when he looks out and he sees us. But the rigor mortis setting in, obviously with the gangrene of the feet and the hands with the very, very real wounds that are there. Um, probably true. Uh, he fished out, um, Holbein did or had fished out a, uh, a body that just drowned, I think, in the, um, I don't know which river. I wanted to say the Rhine, but that may not be right. Um, just to have a, a model to see what it would be like. Um, but this this, uh, this is what I wanted to sort of bring. It's a very heavy class, um, the raising of Lazarus, because Lazarus' power, the pregnancy of the words, what are we going for? Lazarus, come out. 
the word of God spoken, and it goes through the rock. It goes six feet under, as it were. The word of God heard, and even says this in John 5. We didn't look at that. But the time is coming, and it is now here, when the dead will hear the voice of God. And that's what's going on. Uh, where Lazarus come forth, uh, where we're going to feel, I hope, the power of the word of God being spoken to those of us who need some hope, to those of us who need that word poured into our ears so that we too may believe, um, that we too may have hope for those who we love or for ourselves. Um, for death, it comes for us all. Um, it's the last great enemy. We make no friends with it. Uh, and, and Lazarus, the, in John 12, the raising of Lazarus, the uh, the last great sign, as, as John calls them, of the seven. Remember, there's seven. Seven's a big number in John. There's seven signs, and this is the last one. And then from here forward, um, John 12 is Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And so half the gospel, a little bit less than half, about 40% then, uh, is the race to the cross. Um, and we'll pick that up a little bit next week. But this is what I wanted to sort of have to give us uh, a visual, um, where is my, there it is, a visual piece, if you're more of a visual person than a word person, as we think about, if you pass these around, um, this poem by Philip Larkin. Um, don't know much about him, uh, except he's English. My strong sense is he was not a Christian, he was not a believer, um, probably like a lot of folks, uh, uh, would have been there about his age and, and a little bit of what he refers to here. We're going to read the first three stanzas, I think. Uh, probably was, probably raised in the church or went to a Christian school or something else like that. But I would say his perspective is nihilism. What is nihilism? Um, if you play cards and you go nil, you know, it's just nothing. I, I bid nothing. Nile, nothing. Uh, nil, uh, the score is nil, nil, zero to zero. A nihilist believes in nothing. This world is all there is, ism, as Fitzsimmons Allison calls it. Um, it's a, If I weren't a Christian, it's probably a good, you know, you ask yourself, what would you be if you weren't a Christian? I ask myself that question all the time. You know, it's a weird question, isn't it? Um, nihilism would be up there. Um, sort of a nihilism with a good dose of Epicureanism, sort of eat, drink, and be merry, and tomorrow we die. And it's like, this is good. Um, until it's not. <laughs> and I say, oh, we're among all men to be most pitied. But that's another story. He's probably a nihilist. And he's from, this is his last great poem, his last poem. Uh, and he's coming to his death. And he's reckoning himself to this. There's some lines here which describe the hopelessness of life. And then I had in mind Holbein here. And then also in a Dostoevsky piece, uh, where he describes this, uh, Larkin does, uh, this unresting death, which he now sees, he's given the eyes to see things as they actually are in the paradoxical way of being able to see that at four in the morning when he's laying in bed because he can't go back to sleep because he went to bed half drunk and he wakes up and before it's light, when it's still dark, he can see things as they actually are. And that's the setting of the poem. We'll break some of that out. And then when light finally starts to come up, uh, the pretend world, as it were, the world that's very easy to be in denial and act like, oh, it's going to be fine. You know, don't have to worry about that anymore. The boogeyman's gone. Um, I can go back about my business. He knows that's not true, 
but but he's playing this 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 that's that's the string he's playing, the dead Christ in the tomb, which uh, is a stirring piece. There aren't too many pieces that 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 take Christ's death and his 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 he was really dead on Saturday. This wasn't sort of an animation, a suspended animation or a swoon or a faint. He was in Dickens' word. He was dead as a doornail. Not that there's anything particular about a doornail, but he was that dead. Um, it's supposed to be a little bit funny. Um, <laughs> that was Dickens, and I'm trying to find some way to give a little bit of levity because there's not a lot of levity in this material. So, um, so here's uh, O uh, Obod is how you pronounce it. It's the I had to look this up. That it's like a serenade or serenade. That's the song for the evening between two lovers, and this is a song that's sung in the morning, um, and especially the pre-dawn where kind of like Romeo and Juliet, where the man um, singing to his beloved in uh, through a window. That's what an obad is. But now he's got a play where it's the song for the morning, but not quite in that sort of uh, lovely way. So Philip Larkin, um, there's no hope here. So if you're looking for the hope, or tell me if you find it. I don't, I don't hear it. I work all day and get half drunk at night. Waking at four to soundless dark. That's what took me to Holbein, that little line right there. Soundless dark. Waking at four to soundless dark, I stare. In time, the curtain edges will grow light. Till then, I see what's, always, what's really always there. Unresting death, a whole day near now. Making all thought impossible. But how and where and when I shall myself die. Arid interrogation. Yet the dread of dying and being dead flashes afresh to hold and horrify. The mind blanks at the glare, not in remorse, the good not done, the love not given, time torn off unused, nor wretchedly because an only life can take so long to climb clear of its wrong beginnings and may never. But at the total emptiness forever, the sure extinction that we travel to and shall be lost in always, not to be here, not to be anywhere, and soon, nothing more terrible, nothing more true. This is a special way of being afraid. No trick dispels. Religion used to try that vast moth-eaten, moth-eaten musical brocade created to pretend we never die, and spacious stuff that says no rational being can fear a thing it will not feel, not seeing that this is what we fear. No sight, no sound. No touch or taste or smell, <clears throat> nothing to think with, nothing to love or link with, an anesthetic from which none come around. And then he continues. You can read that if you'd like on your own. Um, but just this oppressive heaviness where in the dark of pre-dawn, he sees unresting death um, from which none of us escape, the nothingness which we all fear. Um, and we all fear palpably and physically um, uh, right down to the core of our bones. This is what we fear. We fear the nothingness of the tomb. No sight, no sound, no touch, no taste or smell, nothing to think with, nothing to love or link with, an anesthetic from which none come around. And he was ghastly afraid of that. Here's a man who's coming to the end, um, and he didn't know how else to turn. He thought religion was just this this uh, this knife brocade where you know an embroidery piece that was really uh, pretty but served no purpose except to cover up 
you know, just to be a pretend. Uh, he had no space for that. And so he's left there to wonder what could be. Um, that's just a way to set up John 12, of trying to find some way to come in and hear again afresh as God preaches himself, as God makes himself known. No one has seen God. Jesus Christ, the only uh, begotten of the Father, he has made him known, the blood splurting flat on our heads. Um, uh, so with that, uh, let's go. And, and uh, We're familiar with the Lazarus story. We're going to read it, but I also thought it would be fun to, again, take some, some visual breaks from the hearing. Um, this is just an old, old, old piece. I don't know who Duccio is. I'm the raising Lazarus from the 14th, early 14th century, 1310. But this is the part I liked. Um, because Lazarus, as you know, here's, here's Christ, just to orient ourselves. Some of the disciples, probably Mary and Martha, the Mary and Martha, um, uh, uh, Lazarus's sister, the one sisters, same Mary and Martha of, you know, the fame of Martha being busy and Mary sort of sitting at the feet. And Mary then also wipes Jesus' feet uh, and anoints him. It's pre, pre-burial sense. We're going to read that next week. Um, so there's the orientation. But he was in the tomb for four days, Lazarus was. Um, he stunk. And so there's this great place where one of the disciples as the door is open and he's covering his nose. Even back then, some ways much more then than now because they were they had been very familiar with death um, in ways that we're not. Uh, they... they the, 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 the gangrene, the green, the hue, the color, the pallor, the odor, uh, this would not be something strange to them. Uh, very real. Even a, the, the comment of four days, I thought about that this morning when I was thinking of it. Um, to my ear, it just lends historicity. There's something to this, because why not three? Three would have been a much better number. He's been in the tomb for three days, sort of like the sign of Jonah. Jonah was in the tomb for three days, and Jesus talks about no sign will be given to this faithless generation except the sign of Jonah where Christ would go into the belly of the earth the belly of death to hell himself just like Jonah into the belly of the whale and going down, 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 down and third day rose again not Lazarus it was four, not three why would he do that? Um, I think because it was four days since he had died um, uh, uh, and it just kind of lends it to it you know it's not there's, there's not a figure to part there's some other things that talk about four but I don't think that's the read um, so another one um, Piombo uh, obviously Italian the raising of Lazarus kind of a contemporary of what we just saw with Holbein you can see the contrasting styles that are coming I just saw this one and here's what I noticed that I liked look at Lazarus look at his toes I just think this is great I don't know why this makes me a little bit laugh a little bit He's taken off his, he's, Lord says, unbind him. Take off his, his, his burial clothes. And Lazarus has taken his toes and he's sort of reaching down and pulling off his, uh, the wrappings. He's getting out as soon as he can. There's just a realism to it that I thought was very sort of interesting. Um, not to mention, I mean, look at Lazarus. I mean, this guy is ripped. I mean, so they were just coming into the uh, the form. Again, it's the Renaissance, and there's all these places. And, you know, I don't, he probably didn't look that. They didn't eat that well back then. Um, but, man, that's a four days dead, and he still looks that way? That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Uh, Caravaggio, um, almost always near Caravaggio. Not a good, it's not in good repair, um, but, but one of his justifiably famous pieces, The Raising and the Resurrection of Lazarus. 
just to look at a few of these, here's Christ. Here's obviously Lazarus, very much in a cruciform position, with Caravaggio's great use of light. Uh, you can see right here in the angle, follow this, in Christ's hand. It's almost like, just like what Mark's sermon was saying, a little word can fell him. It's not hard. He's not giving all this exertion. He's not like going, come on. You know, he's just sort of doing this. But look at Lazarus in this hand where the light's just coming. It's like the strengthening. He's just coming into it where the rest of him is still in rigor mortis. And this hand being open. The hands are very important for, for Caravaggio on this plane with all of the upper half open. Still trying to get my head around that and what's going on there, but it's very much a divided frame, uh, left and right, top and bottom, uh, trying to get a sense of the raising of Lazarus with these sharp angles, uh, almost the square angles of Lazarus contrasted to the very curved parts of Mary and Martha, his sisters. And so the contrast between light and dark and death and life, it's a, although it's in very poor disrepair, it's got great um, pathos. And then you can see uh, Lazarus is coming alive, and who are they looking at? It's like, who is this man? Who is this? Who is this that uh, is controlling death? Um, uh, so with all that, I'm going to leave there. Let's read uh, John 12, and then, or John 11, excuse me, John 11. John 12 is next week. Um, John 11 with the death of, parts of the death of Lazarus, and then we'll close with, uh, with those two. Let me hit stop. I threw a lot out there, whether it's Philip Larkin or some of the, the art that we just went through, trying to contrast, very Caravaggio-esque, the hopelessness of Larkin's nihilism with what is truly true and really real and actually actual, that you may believe as these words are poured into your ears uh, and that the word Lazarus come out is Christ's word that he's speaking even now to us, we who are dead in our trespasses and sins right here at 1029 a.m., but also on the day that we die, that we will hear these words and in the twinkling of an eye, uh, we shall know even as we are now fully known. Um, that hope, I hope, becomes felt even as we as we move through the next 15, 20 minutes. Any any thoughts or comments? Yeah, Charlie and then Libby. You know, I, I think that the point chapter is the best is the feeling of the, the thought of death without the resurrection. That with the resurrection, death is a victory. Yep. You know, yep. If you, if you truly sense that. Amen. Thank you. So, so the picture he drew of Christ uh, took on himself before he became a Christian. Holbein? Yeah. No, I, I, I don't know that, but I think he was. I think Holbein was was a Christian at that point. I'm sorry. Say it again. Thou shalt not seek let the Holy One seek corruption. Get corruption. Sure. Yeah, okay, that's good. The, as John Updike's poem, um, I read this sometimes around Christmas, where the, uh, what does it say, the DNA is rekindled. Uh, there's some part of that where I think it was raised in, uh, in glory. Yeah. But I don't know, I'll have to look at that, John. That's good, that's good. Libby? I was just thinking, 
<laughs> yep, I'm in. I think for some it's true. Um, yeah, I wouldn't use this, I don't give this as an evangelism tool, so to speak, or even apologetic. It's not how everybody approaches their death, but it is how some, and even I would say many. Um, maybe less so in Birmingham. Maybe, maybe not. don't know. Um, yeah, Libby. I like Frank's comments too. Yeah. Darkness is like every alcoholic hitting the bottom. That's right. That's good. That's good. <laughs> yeah, Ken. Um, I couldn't help but think uh, in the uh, The Holbein? Yeah. yeah. The Holbein. Um, my mother died probably about 10 years ago, and Frank was still uh, the dean. And he called and said, Don't let them take uh, her body. She was the same artist. She said, I want to come pray over. And he said something uh, that, of course, we all would say we know this. We just talked about it. But this was so profound. To see it, he walked up, grabbed her by the shoulder, and said, Surely Jesus Christ was just this. Mm. Surely he was just this. Amen. And it was profound. It's profound, isn't it? Yeah. We know the rest of the story. That's right. Um, and Jesus wept. We're about to read that. Um, we'll leave that up. That's an arresting piece. We'll stay there for a minute. So from John 11, if you have a scripture and you want a Bible, follow along. I'm going to bounce a little bit um, just for the sake of time. Starting in John 11, 1. Now a certain, oh, here's an interesting theory. This is something to think about. Um, some thought, uh, I've only heard one person say this, and I thought, that's really compelling. Lazarus, what if Lazarus is a pseudonym? Uh, the story fits in some ways, because in John 12, actually at the end of John 11, and then in John 12, the Jews, and I don't mean that again, like I said last time, it's not anti-Semitic, just the people in power should say that. The people in power are looking for Lazarus, because now he is a walking, talking, living, breathing threat to their stability. Uh, and Mary and Martha are well known in the community, uh, and they're referred to often throughout. Uh, and Mary and Martha's brother, if they knew Lazarus, and he lives over there in Mary and Martha's house, they could go get him. And so one person thought, what if it's a, a pseudonym just given to protect the family? Uh, and now he keeps going through and says, a certain man, which is an interesting word. It's not, not typical. It's a very particular, now a certain man. There is a person. He's very per he lives and breathes a certain man named, we'll call him Lazarus, which goes back to Luke, which isn't in John's gospel, because the Lazarus story is only in John's gospel, which also fits maybe in some chronology that Matthew, Mark, and Luke didn't include this because they wanted to protect Mary and Martha, who do appear in all four, three of those gospels. The story of the rich man and Lazarus definitely didn't exist. He was just a parable. Uh, 
uh, where Lazarus died and goes down to Hades and the poor man, uh, Dives, uh, which means the poor man in Latin, goes to heaven. And there's the gulf between them, and Lazarus is still trying to negotiate to have uh, the poor man come and put a drop of water on his tongue to ease his torment and all. And Jesus ends the parable, says, Even if a man comes back to life and goes to them, they will not believe. And now a certain man named Lazarus of Bethany goes through. Anyway, we don't know that. It's just kind of an interesting way to think about the Gospels and the historical peace and all that stuff. Whether, you know, certainly this certain man, I think, lived and died and lived again and then died again. That's a whole other class. Um, uh, but this certain man named Lazarus of Bethany, who's not the Lazarus in the parable, but what if the writer John picked up and said, let's call him Lazarus, because that's the parable that Jesus told. Um, now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Skipping down to verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. So obviously the whole interchange about belief, about being salvation, being faith. Skipping down to verse 32. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died, just like what her sister said. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come also with her weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. Skipping 38. And then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may, be, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands, his, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. So, almost without comment, I'm just going to pass this around now. We'll read uh, this great scene from Crime and Punishment, where again, 
a murderer, Raskolnikov, um, who knows his guilt, um, has no pretense, uh, is, uh, is falling into a nervous breakdown. Um, and he finds himself falling in love with the best friend of one of the two women that he killed, uh, a woman named Sonia, who has, i got to remember this, it gets really complicated, who has given herself to prostitution in order to feed her family, I think. Um, that's the way it usually goes. The landlord, but then this other simpleton, this woman named Lizaveta. We're going to read that. She comes in, and so she has to, he kills her incidentally. Kills a pawnbroker, the landlord, to try to get the money, uh, and is in such a fit, he forgets to get the money. Um, and now it's the descent into to, uh, near madness. Um, it's been a while since I've read the whole, but I went back and read this part. So here's, uh, here's how Raskolnikov has to hear uh, the story of Lazarus. So we have this, the dead Christ in the tomb, and I want to contrast it with Salvador Dali. Um, if you like a little bit more modern. Uh, uh, interesting piece here with Dali, 1964, with these uh, this ink that's kind of shot through. I think this... The, I think he's trying to, it's the way I see it anyway. I don't know if it's what he's trying to do. This is what I see. There's a dynamism that's here. Uh, Easter at the Advent, I usually, you know, I'm part of the 9, 10 crowd, um, except on Easter. Man, I want to get there to hear Fred Teardo's warm-up. And then the re- leading up to the uh, uh, to the bells, where it's the rekindle, the tinkle, 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 where the stone starts to get rolled away. It's the program piece where he's playing right before Welcome, Happy Morning, where there's the, it feels alive to me. And if you look at me, you'll see me cry. I mean, it's just a great, I love that moment. I love being there right then with you in this place uh, every year on Easter. And I, I feel this with Dolly. I know it's strange. But it's like the bell. Do you know what I'm talking about right before Welcome, Happy Morning? Mm-hmm. It's that sense that you can that things are moving and it's starting to come back together and life is starting to be shot back through the dead Lazarus. Lazarus, and it's like this trembling and it's coming out and he's about to come forth. And that's what I see with the Dolly painting. And this is, this is Raskolnikov. He has to have this. It's not an option to him. He Read me the Lazarus story. Find it. Where is it? And listen to some of the details. I'll try to point it out, but I want to read it straight through. He's manic, almost. And then she looks over at him when she very <coughs> reluctantly reads, because this is, she feels very exposed, because this story means a lot to her. Uh, but then it starts to grip her, and she can't not, not read it anymore, because she's like, oh my God, he's going to believe. He's going to believe. And there's a moment he looks, she looks over at him, and it's like he's in the tomb, a la Holbein, uh, where suddenly he's very still, and his elbows are akimbo, and his face is kind of turned out just a little bit. That's the detail that goes He's dead, and he knows it. But then the story goes on, and he starts to come back up. Watch that sweep, and then let's talk. Um, uh, starting about a little more than halfway down. So you pray, there are just the two of them in Sonia's apartment. Again, Sonia is 
she doesn't know that he killed Lizaveta, her friend, um, or the or the pawnbroker. So you pray to God a good deal, Sonia, he asked her. Sonia did not speak. He stood beside her, waiting for an answer. What should I be without God? She whispered rapidly, forcefully, forcibly, glancing at him with suddenly flashing eyes and squeezing his hand. Ah, so that is it, he thought. And what does God do for you? He asked, probing her further. Sonia was silent for a long while, as though she could not answer. Her weak chest kept heaving with emotion. Be silent. Don't ask. You don't deserve, she cried suddenly, uh, looking sternly and wrathfully at him. That's it. That's it, he repeated to himself. He does everything, she whispered quickly, looking down again. That's the way out. That's the explanation, he decided, scrutinizing her with eager curiosity, with a new, strange, almost morbid feeling. He gazed at that pale, thin, irregular, angular little face, those soft blue eyes which could flash with such fire, such stern energy, that little body still shaking with indignation and anger. And it all seemed to him more and more strange, almost impossible. She's a religious maniac, he repeated to himself. There was a book lying on the chest of drawers. He had noticed it every time he paced up and down the room. Now he took it up and looked at it. It was the New Testament in the Russian translation. It was bound in leather, old and worn. Where did you get that? He called to her across the room. She was still standing in the same place, three steps from the table. It was brought me, she answered, as it were unwillingly, not looking at him. Who brought it? Lizaveta. I asked her for it. Lizaveta, strange, he thought. Everything about Sonia seemed to him stranger and more wonderful every moment. He carried the book to the candle and began to turn over the pages. Where's the story of Lazarus? He asked suddenly. Sonia looked obstinately at the ground and would not answer. She was standing sideways to the table. Where is the raising of Lazarus? Find it for me, Sonia. She stole a glance at him. You're not looking in the right place. It's in the fourth gospel, she whispered sternly without looking at him. Find it and read it to me, he said. He sat down with his elbow on the table, leaned his head on his hand, and looked away sullenly, prepared to listen. In three weeks' time, they'll, be welcome, they'll welcome me in the madhouse. I shall be there if I'm not in a worse place, he muttered to himself. Sonia heard Raskolnikov's request distrustfully and moved hesitatingly to the table. She took the book, however. Haven't you read it? she asked, looking up at him from across the table. Her voice became sterner and sterner. Long ago, when I was at school, read. And haven't you heard it at church? I haven't been. Do you often go? No, whispered Sonia. Raskolnikov smiled. I understand. And you won't go to your father's funeral tomorrow? Yes, I shall. I was at church last week, too. I had a requiem service. For whom? For Lizaveta. She was killed with an axe. Her nerves were more and more strained. His head began to go round. Were you friends with Lizaveta? Yes, she was good. She used to come. Not often. She couldn't. We used to read together and talk. She will see God. The last phrase sounded strange in his ears. And here was something new again. The mysterious meetings with Lizaveta and both of them. Religious maniacs. I shall be a religious maniac myself soon. It's infectious. Read, he cried irritably and insistently. Sonia still hesitated. Her heart was throbbing. He, she hardly dared to read to him. He looked almost with exasperation at the unhappy lunatic. What for? You don't believe, she whispered softly as, as if, and, and, as if, and as it were breathlessly. 
Read. I want you to, he persisted. You used to read to Lizaveta. Sonia opened the book and found the place. Her hands were shaking. Her voice failed her. Twice she tried to begin and could not bring out the first syllable. Now a certain man was sick, named Lazarus of Bethany. She forced herself at last to read, but at the third word her voice broke like an overstrained string. There was a catch in her breath. Raskolnikov saw in part why Sonia could not bring herself to read to him, and the more he saw this, the more roughly and irritably he insisted on her doing so. He understood only too well how painful it was for her to betray and unveil all that was her own. He understood that these feelings really were her secret treasure, which she had kept perhaps for years, perhaps from childhood, while she lived with an unhappy father and distracted stepmother, crazed by grief in the midst of starving children and unseemly abuse and reproaches. But at the same time, he knew now and knew for certain that, although it filled her with dread and suffering, yet she had a tormenting desire to read and to read to him that he might hear it and to read now whatever might come of it. He read this in her eyes. He could see it in her intense emotion. She mastered herself, controlled the spasm in her throat, and went on reading the 11th chapter of St. John. She went on to the 19th verse. And many of the Jews came to Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. And then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary sat still in the house. And then Martha, then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. But I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. And then she stopped again with a shamefaced feeling that her voice would quiver and break again. Jesus said unto her, Thy brother shall rise again. Martha saith to him, I know that he, rise, he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? She saith unto him, and drawing a painful breath, Sonia read distinctly and forcibly, as though she were making a public confession of faith, Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. She stopped and looked up quickly at him, but controlling herself went on reading. Raskolnikov sat without moving, his elbows on the table, and his eyes turned away. She read to the 32nd verse. Then Mary was come where Jesus was and saw him. She fell down at his feet, saying unto him, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, the Jews also weeping, which came with her, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled, and said, Where have ye laid him? And they said unto him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then he said, unto the, then he said to the Jews, Behold, then said the Jews, Behold how he loved him. And some of them said, Could not this man, which opened the eyes of the blind, have caused that even this man should not have died? Raskolnikov turned and looked at her with emotion. Yes, she, he had known it. She was trembling in a real physical fever. He had expected it. She was getting near the story of the greatest miracle, and a feeling of immense triumph came over her. Her voice rang out like a bell. Triumph and joy gave it power, 
The lines danced before her eyes, but she knew what she was reading by heart. The last verse, at the last verse, could not this man which opened the eyes of the blind, dropping her voice, she passionately reproduced the doubt, the reproach, and the censure of the blind, disbelieving Jews, who in another moment would fall at his feet, as though struck by thunder, sobbing and believing. And he, he too, is blinded and unbelieving too. He, I'm sorry, and he, he too is blinded and unbelieving. He too will hear. He too will believe. Yes, yes, at once, now, was what she was dreaming. And she was quivering with happy anticipation. Jesus, therefore, groaning in himself, cometh to the grave. It was a cave, and a stone lay upon it. Jesus said, Take ye away the stone. Martha, the sister of him that was dead, saith unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for it has been dead for, for he has been dead for four days. She laid an emphasis on the word for. Jesus saith unto her, Said I not unto thee, that if thou wouldst believe, thou shouldst see the glory of God. And they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee for that thou dost hurt. I thank thee that thou hast heard me, and I knew that thou hearest me always. But because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. And when he thus had spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth. She read loudly, cold and trembling with ecstasy, as though she were seeing it before her eyes, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound about with a napkin, Jesus saith unto them, Loose him, and let him go. Then many of the Jews which came to Mary had seen these things, which Jesus did, believed on him. She could read no more, closed the book, and got up from her chair quickly. That is all about the raising of Lazarus, she whispered severely and abruptly. And turning away, she stood motionless, not daring to raise her eyes to him. She still trembled feverishly. The candle end was flickering out of the battered candlestick, dimly lighting up in the poverty-stricken room the murderer and the harlot who had so strangely been reading together the eternal book. Five minutes or more passed. I think it's a great scene. Um, well, we're at time. Um, you read well. Well, it writes well. It's written well. Do you know that Let me say a prayer. Gracious Lord, uh, speak to us and let our ears hear that we would believe. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.